Good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of our community uh, this morning. Uh, <clears throat> soccer season's over, so I was not on the soccer field all day yesterday, so I'm plenty well rested. Uh, there was no, uh, no ambulances this past week, no hospital stays, so dad got out. He's healthy and are on the road to recovery, I guess I should say. So, uh, so if you've been with us the past couple weeks, you know that both those things have kind of been the recipe for like tears, emotion, and drama. Hopefully that won't happen today, so hopefully we'll just have some time to text and, uh, and allow us to be uh, convicted and taught and encouraged uh, by the Lord, and who, well, I guess who knows what that could bring, uh, but uh, I'm not emotionally spent or anything going in the morning, so uh, I'm not expecting anything, but uh, you guys know um, it can sneak up on me at any point in time. <laughs> so, hey, look, the passage of scripture that we're going to be in today, let me just say this, it's weird. Um, there's just no other way around it. Or the, the, rep, the Old Testament has a reputation for having some pretty crazy stories about how God works, how God moves, how he corrects, how he teaches, how he serves, how he protects his children. And, and today is one of them. So just at the top, I want to like, just all of us, let's just acknowledge the crazy. Because it's, it's just a strange passage of, of scripture. At the same time, it's a story that Jesus referenced when he was describing the ministry that he would accomplish in and, through the in and through the cross. So while it is a strange text and relatively short, it's just uh, maybe five or six verses, it, it's a story that is very formative for the faith of Israel. So much so to where Jesus alludes to it in a very, very noteworthy conversation. For you and for me, uh, th this text is a cautionary story of how pride and arrogance can, can lead to impatience with the Lord and can lead to a lack of gratitude for who he is and for what he's done. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed in, in my own heart, my own soul, whenever impatience is brewing, like that's a recipe where jealousy and envy and ungratefulness and bitterness, all that is sure to follow when I find myself getting impatient with how I think the Lord should work and how I think the Lord should move. And so this story gives, gives a warning in into that dynamic when you start to feel that in your soul. It's a story that also speaks to the gravity of sin and, and the far-reaching repercussions of our sin. But it's also a story that shows how God is quick to redeem, quick to reconcile, quick to rescue those who confess, turn, and look to Him. So go to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, for the story of Moses and the bronze serpent. Uh, this is the closest we will ever come to being a snake handling church. And uh, there's no real snakes or anything like that today, but there's plenty of them in the text. You can make all your jokes right now, like Samuel Jackson, snakes on a plane, parcel tongue, if Harry Potter's your world, like all that. You can bring all those illustrations out if you want. And so, because uh, the, the band and all the tech team made all those jokes when I said where, where we're headed. So, uh, but it is, it's, it's this weird story of Moses and a bronze snake and snakes hitting the Israelite camp. Let me set the scene for what we're dropping in on. Uh, give us the context. This happens at the end uh, of the 40, year, uh, uh, 40 years of wandering in the desert. So that, that's happening when, and at that point in history for the Israelite people. Remember, they had been enslaved to Egypt for close to 400 years. God rescues them, brings them out, and is leading them to the promised land. Uh, but if, you, if you're with us last week, right before they enter into the promised land, uh, the Israelites, they let fear destroy their faith. Uh, they, they get fearful of going into the promised land. They were fearful of the armies they would face they would, they would face in there. And so instead of trusting in the Lord to deliver them, instead of trusting in the Lord to protect them, to provide for them, to bless them in the land, uh, the Israelites refused to go in. 
and, and instead of entering into the promised land, they complain against the Lord and they say it would be better for us to die in the desert than to die in battle in the promised land. And so the Lord says, fine, <laughs> essentially. And, and he banishes them to the desert for 40 years. And it was in, in judgment of their rejection of him, in judgment of their rebellion against his plan, uh, that, that he basically kind of honors their choice and says, if you want the desert, to the desert you go. Now, God still remains faithful to Israel. He still, still is going to honor his promise. He's going to remain faithful to Israel as a whole. And, and so he's going to honor the promise that he's made to them. To, um, so while that generation dies off in the wilderness, it's going to be their children that are able to enter into the promised land, enjoy the fruits of the land, and enjoy the rest of the promised land. Okay, in Numbers 21, we're at the end of that 40 years. The children have come of age. They've just grieved for the death of, of Aaron, Moses' brother, who was a high priest. And now they're moving into position to enter into the promised land. Now, as they do this, uh, a, a small army of Canaanites comes out and attacks the Israelite people and actually takes some of them captive. And, and the Israelites, they're, you know, obviously they're, they're angered by this, they're, they're grieved by this, and so they ask the Lord to uh, deliver those Canaanites into their hands. And the Lord answers their, their prayer. They go, they attack, they defeat the Canaanites, and they, uh, they rescue uh, their countrymen. They rescue their, their, you know, their, their brothers, their sisters. They rescue those that have been captive. This is no small thing in, in the setup for this story, okay? Just keep in mind what I've just talked through. Their parents feared the Canaanites so much where they refused to go into the promised land. And now their children have just won really a decisive military battle against them. No small thing that they were able to attack and, and free uh, their, their countrymen and, and come back. And no small thing that the Canaanites were defeated really in such a dramatic manner. But now they've won that battle and they're headed to the promised land. But they're taking the long way to get there. Uh, they continue to go on the southern border of the promised land, and there's this region known as Edom. And the Edomites wouldn't let them go through the region to get in the promised land because that would have been the shortest route. So they have to go all the way around, and they're going to come in the promised land from the east. And so just think about that. They're at the end of a 40-year journey. They're like, can we just get to the promised land? But yet God is leading them on a bit of a detour uh, to come into the promised land from the east. And as they're on that detour, they begin to complain uh, and grumble against the Lord. And this is where we drop in the text. Numbers 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Again, they're about to enter the promised land, the land flowing with milk and with honey. And, and so, I mean, just think about their experience with this and just like, you know, when you go on a road trip, right? It seems like the last hour, last two hours before you get back home seems to take forever, right? Especially when you're coming from Meridian. It's just like, I'm never going to get to Jackson. And so, you know, it's just like, please, can I get there already? And, and, and so you're just feeling like you're never going to get there. It's the same thing with Israel. Um, they're, they're the 40 years in the wilderness, but now they can't just go in. They have to go around. And they're just, they start to complain. And, and the complaints that they lodge against the Lord, very similar to what their parents had said. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt just, uh, to die in the wilderness? We could have died there. We didn't have to take this long journey. But then their, their complaining takes a bit of a weird twist. There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. You see, for the past 40 years... 
they've been traveling in the desert, so you'd be like, it seems like that would be logical. There's no water, there's no bread. But no, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, for the past 40 years, they have lived off of water and manna, or bread from heaven, that God has miraculously provided for them. So God has miraculously given them water and bread uh, to live off of for the entire 40 years. They've never lacked They've never suffered for lack of food, never suffered for, for lack of water. God has cared for them this entire time. But now being so close to the promised land, a, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a land that they've heard stories of, of all the, the cluster of grapes and the pomegranates and all that sort of stuff that they know grows there. Now being so close to it, they, they begin to complain and they begin to gripe about the food. But know this, this isn't just an insult to, to on, on griping about the menu, okay? This is an insult uh, against the provision of grace that God was given to them daily. You see, the, the, the manna started when their parents had grumbled against the Lord. The parents grumbled against the Lord and said, we don't have any food. And God <clears throat> chooses to bless them when he, when he could have punished them and said, just trust me. But no, God uh, gives favor to them. Even when they didn't merit it, even when they didn't earn it, God favors them, and, and he decides to give them manna twice a day. He would give it in the morning, he would give it in the evening, he would give them a double portion on the day before Sabbath. And, and if you were with us, when we looked at that story, probably about four or five weeks ago, we talked about how it wasn't just bread, that was a daily provision of grace. A daily provision of grace. Every time they gathered the manna, it would be a reminder that, that, this, that God loves, that God cares, that God provides. Every time they gathered the manna, they would be beholding the power and the might of God. And yet here, they're treating it with contempt. They're beholding this miracle and they're like, we have nothing but this miserable food that you are giving us. I mean, they, 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 they feel as though this food is good for nothing. Where does this contempt come from? You know, where, where, where does this bitterness against the Lord's provision, where does that originate in their soul? Where does this ungratefulness come from? Like, what's the root of their sin in their life? I think to a great degree, it's rooted in their impatience, and that stems from their pride. I think it goes back a bit to this military victory. They had this victory against the Canaanites. And remember, God gave them that victory, but nevertheless, they saw, they experienced, they had a victory. They got a W. They got a win. And it's almost as if they feel like they're, they're, they're leveling up a bit. Like they should, they, they, they should be past this manna now. Past this dependence on the Lord. They're on the edge of the promised land. Land flowing with milk and honey. Can't we just get there? Do we have to go around this long way? We just beat the Canaanites. Let's just go straight. We'll take care of the Edomites along the way. And we'll kill the Canaanites when we get there. It's almost like we just want to go. We just want to get there. We want to be in the land. God, why are you making us wait? God, why can't we go now? God, what ha why haven't you done anything for us lately? All we have is this miserable food. They get impatient, they get ungrateful, they get entitled, and they begin to complain against the Lord and despise what he has done. But come on, come on, how, how, how many times, how many times have you, how many times have we initially been grateful for a blessing from the Lord, only to then turn and view that same blessing with bitterness, contempt, and ingratitude. Don't believe me? What about, what about that first job, right? You were so grateful for the job when it came. You know, it gave a paycheck, helped you put food on the table, but, but then, or maybe now, you're souring on it, turning a little bit, and blaming God for not giving you a better one. Or, or, or maybe it was on your wedding day. You thank God that she said yes because you didn't think you would find one that would, right? <laughs> like, like, yes, she said yes, and, and just such a blessing. But now you're, you're years into marriage, 
And just like every marriage, you, maybe you've hit some rough spots all, along the way. And there starts to be this, this impatience that can well up or this turning that can well up. And think, God, why, why aren't you giving me the, the marriage that I thought I should have? Why aren't you giving me the, the fulfillment that I envisioned for what my marriage should look like? And, and so there's a blessing, but now there's starting to be a bit of ingratitude uh, ascribed to it. Or, or maybe, may, maybe it's, it's with a church home. Maybe you found a church home here at Grace City. Or maybe you're visiting, so it's one back home. And, and, the, and the first weeks months, maybe first few years of your church home, you're like, man, this, this is a blessing, this is great, but then uh, maybe I said something you didn't like, or maybe there was, maybe there was a disagreement with, with, with somebody in the church, or you disagreed with the decision, or, or, or maybe you, you feel like the church should be doing something more to help you level up in, 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 the, in your faith, and the next thing you know, there just starts to be this uh, impatience or this, this souring, and it's this, this toxin, this impatience that, and pride that can creep in, and just ingratitude begins to corrupt the perspective a bit. You see, the Israelites, they did it with manna. We can do it with work, relationships, church, and so many other things where we initially receive a blessing of God into our life, and then we turn, and we treat it with contempt. Let this text give the warning. The Lord does not abide our contempt. Let this text give the warning. Because the Israelites' contempt is going to draw a sharp response from the Lord. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the Lord disciplines his people, and he leads them to confession, leads them to repentance, and he, he does it by sending snakes into their camp. I told you it was weird, told you it was strange, but this is what we're dealing with. Um, the other thing that I thought about with this sermon, I thought about leading with a picture of the snake that scholars think. Um, it's a carpet viper. Uh, they're, they're very prominent in the region where they were. And I was, I, was, I was talking to April about it. I was like, should I show a picture? She's like, well, I would think it was cool, but I'm definitely afraid of spiders. If you put a spider on the screen, I'll probably never come back to Grace City. It's like, fair enough. I want you to come back. <laughs> and, so, and so I didn't show a picture, but you can Google it, uh, carpet viper. It's, they're, they're pretty numerous in this area, but there were so many that were coming into their camp. So many people were being bit. So many people were, were dying from uh, the poison that they realized, hey, this is, this is different. This isn't just we've hit a bad stretch of land. The, the Lord is, is judging the, the Lord is judging us for our sin, judging us for our rebellion against the Lord, judging us for, for treating his blessing, with grace, uh, his, his blessing of grace with contempt, judging us for our pride and for our impatience with him. But then they, they do something wise. Like as much as we might find fault with their initial error or see ourselves in that error, we have to give them credit for their response. Uh, because they could have allowed the, the biting and the death, they could have allowed that to harden their hearts and turn them away from the Lord, turn, uh, or harden them all the more. But yet they confess their sin. They repent and they ask for, uh, ask for mercy. Moses had interceded for them before and they ask him to do it again. And sure enough, Moses does. Moses goes before the Lord, intercedes for them, but then the Lord responds to Moses and tells him to do something. I don't think anybody would have guessed he has Moses make a replica of that which is killing him. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. That's weird. That's weird to me, right? Like if I'm Moses and God's like, make a snake, I'm like, really? We've got plenty of them. <laughs> like, like why, are you make, why do you want me to make a snake? Why do you want me to make an image of that which is actually killing us? 
Like, and, and like, I, I've never, under, I know in the medical profession, you've got the little staff with the snake around it, and it's like, I've never, like, I know it's tied back to this story and actually tied back to some other stuff, but like, I've never thought, like, it's a poison snake. Why is that some sign of, of, of healing? But I mean, cure, like, God gives this instruction to Moses and is like, this is the plan. Make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, lift it up, and all who look to it will be saved. Now, the phrase look to it, it's loaded. Right, it's not just like, oh, we get a glimpse of it. Or it's, no, it's, when you look at it, it's, that look to it is carrying it. Hey, I, I believe, I have faith, I have trust that God is going to do what he said he would do in my looking at this bronze serpent. I believe that God will heal. I believe that God will rescue. I believe that God will take this poison away from me when I look. Because that's the plan. That's the cure that God gives. God could have done this a thousand different ways. I don't know why he didn't, but this is how he set it in place. This is how he decides to intervene. This is how he decides to rescue. Those who are bitten simply have to trust in him and respond to what God has done on their behalf. Those that looked at the bronze serpent on the staff were saved. Those that refused did not. But I would say that in this direction, in this direction, God's grace comes to them once again. There was judgment and punishment for sh over their sin, for sure. But God made a way for people to be restored. God made a way for people to be reconciled to him. God made a, a way for, to be rescued from the poison of the snakes that infested their camp. They confess, they repent, and they're reconciled back unto God. You would think it would be kind of the end of the story of the bronze snake. But there's a, a curious turn of events that happens after this. And that's going to come decades, really even centuries later on. Um, because what was once a symbol of God's grace and provision and, and, and healing, you know, what was once that symbol, that bronze snake on the staff, it actually turns into a false form of worship. Because, see, the Israelites, they held on to the staff that Moses had made. And, and they began to um, burn in over the course of time, began to burn incense in front of that bronze serpent on the staff, thinking that, that somehow it was the literal bronze snake on the staff that brought about the healing. And so they began to worship what Moses ha had made and, and were worshiping it, worshiping it in a false way. In 2 Kings chapter 18, at, this point, at that point in time of the history of Israel, Hezekiah is king of the Israelites. And he's a God-fearing king. Um, he, uh, he actually tries to purify the, the land from all worship to false gods and false goddesses. And as he's kind of tearing down these temples and these false places of worships, he, he remembers this bronze snake and he shatters it. He breaks it into pieces because God's people were worshiping the staff rather than worshiping the one true God. And so what, what you see happen with the Israelites is they, they're on both ends of the spectrum. Um, they, they, turn the blessing, they, they look at the blessings of God with contempt and ingratitude, but then they also go to the polar opposite and they actually elevate the blessings that God has given above God himself. And I, I think that can happen for us as well. We can do the same, whether it's work or relationships or church. So many of the blessings we can either treat with contempt and ingratitude and impatience, or we can go to the polar opposite and begin viewing the blessings that God has given as somehow false gods themselves. And in so doing, we commit the same sin of idolatry, which poisons the soul and, which, which, which poisons the soul and, and puts us right back in, in need for the grace and the mercy and the redemption of God. So the question should come then, what do we do? Like, what's, what's the way forward here? How do, how do, we, how do we respond to this? Um, and, and, and I hope, too, uh, that, that it doesn't take snakes biting us to get our attention, right? <laughs> like, like that, that, that we, we would see our sin and confess our sin and, 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 and turn from it. But I do, and I, I know I've kind of made jokes around, uh, I, don't, I, don't, 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 I don't hear me making light of Scripture when I say it's weird. Um, it, it should be uh, 
that was more just to kind of l- get us comfortable with interacting with the text. I mean, this is, it is a passage of scripture that calls us to this somber and saving news that God still disciplines, right? That God still rebukes. He still corrects. He still disciplines. He's always done it and still does it. Now, we would be wise uh, to, to know the different ways that God corrects, to know the different ways that, that God rebukes and that he disciplines. One of the ways is through his word. Me personally, I think that's the least painful way to respond to God, right? Like, like I, I want to know the correction and instruction of his word. And, and when, it, when it calls me to confess my sin, I want to do that. I want to turn from that. And so one way that he corrects and rebukes us is through, uh, through his word, through his counsel. Another way that God rebukes and corrects is through, uh, through the Holy Spirit. Um, we believe the Holy Spirit is living and active and that he prompts us, that he can convict us of our sin. And so you and I would be wise that when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to, to say yes, to, to confess that sin and trust in him and turn, turn from that sin. But at the same time, I do believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that God can work against you in your life at times. God will thwart your efforts at work. He will thwart your efforts in your relationships. He might even bring... Uh, he might even bring difficulty into and, and close relationships, or maybe it might even uh, make the plans for your marriage not go the way that you want because you have sinful plans for your marriage. But in that, if you persist in your sin, he's going to work against you. He's going to work, work against you to lead you to a place where you can see your sin, confess your sin, and turn to him. And, and those are ways that he corrects, and those are ways that he disciplines us. But still then the question should come, okay, now when we confess and we're, we're trusting him with this, like how, does, how is the, like the poisons of our soul taken away? Like how are these afflictions, how are these toxins taken away from us? And Jesus said to look to him just as the Israelites looked to the bronze snake. And for that we go to a conversation in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is, is having a conversation with a Jewish leader named Nicodemus. And Jesus is teaching him about what it means to be born into the kingdom of God. And in this conversation, Jesus also predicts uh, his coming cross to, Na- to Nicodemus when he says this in John chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. John chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What's our solution? What, what's our hope? We look to Jesus who's high and lifted up to take away our sin, to take away that which poisons our soul. I mean, you know, John three sixteen. like everybody, like you've seen that reference. It's crazy to me the context of that is this Moses and the bronze serpent. But it's, it's showing how all the gospel is pointing to this. It's showing how all the gospel is pointing us to this truth that when we look to Christ, when we look to Christ, he is the one who takes away our sin, who takes away that which poisons the soul. 1 Peter 2, 24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You know, I, I said earlier, you know, when Moses is making the snake, like, you know, God, why are you making me make a snake? Why, are you, why am I making a symbol of that which is, that which is killing us uh, to, to save us? In, in so many ways, that's what we're looking at on the cross. Hang with me. Like, I, I, when we're looking at the cross, part of what we're seeing on the cross is that which kills us. Again, hang with me. Because he, Christ bearing our sins on his body. So all the poison of our sin and our soul, it's now given to Christ. And that's what's killing him. 
Right? It's our sin that, that is killing him. He's, he's bearing that punishment for us. So when we look to the cross, we see our sin on the cross. So we are looking to that which is killing us. Just like that, the snake was killing the people, they look and they see the snake and the poison, that which was killing them. But in doing this, this is what keeps us grateful. This is what keeps us, this fights back against the pride. This fights back against the, what have you done for me lately? It fights back against the impatience. Because when we look at our sin that's on Christ, that he's bearing on his body that he's dying for our behalf it helps us know this is how we live for righteousness and so not only are we looking at that which is killing us the sin that is on christ we're looking at that which saves us the redemptive work that christ is doing on the cross on our behalf he's taking the sin on himself bearing it himself so that we can live for righteousness and so the cross at one time and in one place and in, in one look becomes this dual reminder of our sin and its consequences but the daily, daily, daily provision of grace that we have been given. So when we look to Jesus, and again, not just a glimpse, right? When we, when we look to Jesus, and by that I mean believe in him, trust in him, put our hope in him, that, that he has done what, that he has done what he has promised, that God is doing the work in and through Christ that he said that he was going to do. When we trust in that, we too have eternal life. We have eternal life. The poison of our soul is taken away. And it helped, it, I, I believe this, I, I think when we look to Christ on the cross and continue to look at him, I think that helps us come back and steward well the blessings of God in our life. And so to, to me, I, I think this is one of the central issues of this text, really Numbers 21, 2 Kings 18, and John 3. And it's, it's a question I've already asked, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it to a, a head as well. And the question that you have to ask yourself is how do you, how do you respond to the blessings of God in your life? How do you respond to the blessings of God in your life? The, the Israelites, right, they had the military victory. They had that first victory, and they grew prideful. They, they, they grew impatient. Uh, they believed that it was something that they did, and, and, and they got entitled. They got ungrateful for all that God had done. And then they treated so many of his blessings with contempt. And then on the flip side, obviously, they also then eventually elevated the blessing above the Lord, and they treated that symbol as, as some sort of a false God itself. And so how do you respond to the blessings of God in your life? Do you initially receive it with gratitude? Do you initially re receive it with worship and with thanksgiving only to then turn on it and, 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 and view it with gratitude, believing that God should then bless you even more? Is there a sense of entitlement that creeps in? Or, or, or maybe are you elevating the blessings that God has given you uh, even above God himself? You're not loving him anymore, but you're loving the things that, that, that might come from him. Or are you receiving these blessings with humility and gratitude? Is it with a reaction uh, that, that fosters worship of God who is gracious and who is providing for us? And then I think that question should lead us to, the, to ask the next one. How do we treat and respond to the highest blessing of God in our life, the gospel of Christ Jesus? How do we treat and respond to that? Because that is the plan of God. That is the plan that God enacted for us to look to, to believe in, and be healed from our sin. He could have done it a thousand different ways because he's God. But this is the plan that he set in motion. This is the plan that he enacted for us to be able to be healed from our sin and reconciled to him. It is one blessing that continues to war against our pride, that calls us out on our sin by showing us its consequence on the cross. At the same time, it overwhelms us with God's generosity. It encourages us with his love, and it enables us to join in the redeeming work that God is doing in this world. 
it's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing we don't move beyond. We don't level up from. It's a blessing that we grow deeper in our knowledge of, in our appreciation of, and the application of in our heart, in our life, in our relationship with the Lord, in our relationships with others. It's a blessing we look to again and again and again because we know that on the cross, our sin is dealt with, that life is given, and we are healed in him. So I pray, I pray, I pray you look to Jesus. I pray you look to him for the healing and the restoration and the forgiveness and the salvation that he alone can bring. And I pray that you continue to do so, uh, that, that you continue to look to him, continue to respond to the blessings of God in a way that is saturated with humility, with gratitude, and with worship for who he is, for what he's done, and the grace he has displayed.